It was a fun ride. But that's it. Party's over. Clouds are in the sky. Rain is falling down upon our heads. You had to go to class this morning. <laughs> you should probably open a book today. I don't know if you will or you will not. I'm saying you probably should open a book today. And even though there is a great joy that comes from learning, and going to college is a little different from going to like grade school or middle school because you don't just have to sit in the same place all day. You can get up, you can move around. A lot of what we do together is around relationality and, and activities. There's still this little twinge of like, man, summer's over. You think back on your summer, I don't know what the best part of your summer was. Maybe it was the cookouts. Maybe it was like you got to go somewhere. Maybe you got to hang out with some people. Maybe you worked 20 hours a day doing harvest and you were just sleeping on this giant pile of money every night after you went to bed. <laughs> Maybe it was just the idea of being back home and, 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 and looking at all of the, the pictures that were still on your childhood bedroom wall. And you were just thinking about all those times when you were a little kid and what summer was like just staying out in, in, until whenever uh, your mom or your dad told you you had to, to come home, that sock feet on the concrete, like Jelly Rancher Kid, knucklehead type stuff. I, I don't know. Like, there, there, there's a lot that goes into summer, and it's hard to say goodbye to summer. I think I got a, in a little bit of denial for a while about how good my summer was. I've been talking to you guys, and, and we've been doing, you know, the small talk meeting up again thing, and people have been like, what'd you do this summer? And I'm just like, nothing. I didn't really do anything. I just hung out. And for whatever reason, um, the last couple of days I was thinking about, that's, that actually wasn't true. I did a lot this summer. I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time. Like, that was a thing. That was pretty cool. It was more than a big hole in the ground. There was, um, it was, it was crazy. Like, for the first month of summer, there was literally soccer on TV all day. And so me and my kids, like, we were watching soccer tournaments, and the summer ended the same way with the Olympics. I got to see some, some live soccer games. I got to check a concert off my bucket list this summer. That was super fun. None other than, than the legendary Roots crew from Philly came to Wichita, Kansas. Like, isn't that a little bit insane? I still can't even believe that that happened. Like there as, as a lifelong hip hop head, one of my favorite bands ever. And I had kind of been resigned to the fact that 10 years ago when they came to Kansas City the last time and I didn't go see them, that I had lost my chance forever. I was never going to get to see The Roots. I was never going to get to see a live hip hop band that has this dude literally wear a tuba around for the entire two hour set and jump around from side to side of the stage playing the bass line. I wasn't going to get to see an electric guitarist live and in person by the name of Captain Kirk. I wasn't going to get to see uh, Tariq, Black Thought himself, just, just spit rhyme after rhyme, and I was not going to get to see Questlove drum. But I got to do that. I actually got to do that because they actually came to, to River Festival, and it was amazing. Dave Chappelle came on stage and introduced them because he was performing down the street that night. I just went nuts. I was like, uh, I kind of felt like, you know, um, in the original Muppet show, when like Kermit introduces people and then like just goes off the stage waving his arms and throwing his head in the air. That's what I felt like. I felt like Kermit the Frog, like watching the roots. And, and a lot of other cool things happened. I read some cool stuff. I actually felt like I was stalking the roots this summer because I was reading Questlove's book um, on kind of his musical journey throughout life. And it's a fascinating journey. Um, he wrote this book called Mo Meta Blues. And there was this part that really started to make sense to me as I was preparing sermons for this year, as he was talking about his musical journey and the records that he would listen to and the musical exposure that he had because his parents uh, were in a band when he was growing up, he started talking about the blues. And when he was talking about the blues, he talked about the blues were essentially a collection of flat notes that told round stories. 
the blues were a collection of flat notes that told round stories. And, and that was really encouraging to me because there's this process that I go through when I start choosing stuff for chapel. First, I get really excited, feel like I made, made a great choice. Then I feel like I made a horrible choice. Then it all kind of comes together and, and makes sense. And I think we get to a place where we can journey together. A couple of years ago, I knew that this year we'd be back in the Old Testament and that I wanted us to go through the prophets, that I wanted us to look at the people who were assigned by God to speak prophets words in the Hebrew Bible to the people of Israel. And so I was really pumped about it. And I was reading stuff. I was reading this book on Jeremiah. I was reading all this stuff and I was psyched. And then I went to, to my bosses and I said, Hey, I want to go through the prophets next year. I want to start in Isaiah. They said, good job. I was like, yeah, I did a good job. Good job me. And then I started reading the prophets and I was like, man, there's a lot of down stuff in here. I'm not sure if college students are just going to want to come and just get bam, 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 like every single Wednesday and Sunday in, in chapel. We might have record chapel failures. Uh, people will be real, real bummed out the whole year, and, and, and that might not be the best, you know, for them or for my job security, like either way. Um, and then I, I, I read that quote by Questlove, and I thought, yeah, see, the, the prophets, they have a lot of flat notes, but they really are trying to tell a round story. They really are trying to tell a round story. I started to think about what is the round story that the prophets are living in, that the prophets were trying to tell the people of that time. What is the round story that God is asking us to exist in? A story of robustness, a story of wholeness, a story of peace, a story of completeness. As the Hebrew people would have said, that story of shalom, where does that start? Where are we at in that process? As, as we talk about the prophets and as we talk about what's going on in that ancient world, what is that thing that we can hold on to even when we are being challenged so that the challenge does not then just discourage us. So that the challenge does not drag us into the abyss. So that the challenge does not break our faith, but the challenge helps us to mutually strengthen our faith together. I mean, I think that the roundness of that story starts at the very creation of humanity all the way at the beginning of our Bibles, where God speaks us into existence, where God creates humanity in God's own image, where God desires for us to live this life where we are in perfect communion with God, where God creates all of these things out of nothing so that the universe can declare the glory of God. That's a very round story. Some, some, some flat notes, some dissonance comes into that story very early. Adam and Eve don't make the best decisions, but the story, even though it has those flat notes, even though they're cast out of the, 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 the garden, even though they don't do what they're supposed to do, there's still something good going on. God does not cease to work for the good of his creation. When we get a little bit more through the Bible, God has established some people to help him to work for the good of his glory. We know that in the ancient Israelite world, there were three official offices in the kingdoms. You had the prophets, and you had the priests, and you had the kings. And those three, those three different offices, they spoke to each other, but they had specific roles that they were supposed to fulfill. The kings were supposed to kind of uh, keep law and order. They were supposed to rule over the people. They were supposed to do those, those, those militaristic things that nations sometimes need to do. The priests were supposed to be a go-between between the people and God. They were supposed to help people, give people space to worship. 
They were supposed to, to, to teach people and facilitate the spirituality of the nation. At times, they were supposed to facilitate and speak into the spiritual lives of the kings. And then you had the prophets. And the prophets, they didn't have a great job because the job that they had most of the time was to tell everybody where they had maybe gone astray a little bit, to tell everybody where they had wandered off the path to be that reminder. Sometimes that reminder was a gentle nudge. Sometimes that reminder was a sledgehammer that was crushing paradigms that had been built up that were antithetical to the paradigms that, that, that God wanted the people to have about who they were as a people, who they were as individuals, who God himself was, who the one true God was. And as you could imagine, that would cause a bit of stress in your life. If you have to go in and stand before the king, as prophets sometimes had to do, and say, hey, bro, you ain't doing this right. Because the king is the one who has the power to give and the power to take away. Kings, people in leadership positions often do not deal well with folks who come and threaten their moral superiority or who threaten their power. And so if you're the prophet and you are being called to, to go to, to people who have a different value system than you, and if you're called to tell them that they are wrong, if those are very powerful people, you could feel like you are often in danger. You could feel like you are often stressed. You could feel like, even though you know you are in the midst of a round story, that you're singing a lot of flat notes. You're singing a lot of flat notes. Our verse for the year this year is a round story verse, but it's in the middle of a section of scripture that has a lot of flat notes in it. There was this prophet, the prophet's name is Isaiah. He has one of the longer books in our Bible, one of the longer books in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 17, he talks about the roundness of the story. He talks about the call that God puts on our life. And he sets some parameters around some things to help us understand what the round story is that God wants us to live out. In Isaiah 48, Verse 17, he says simply this, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy one of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you for your own good, who leads you in the way you should go. When I ask you what your call is, what would your answer be? If you were to think about it, if someone were to ask you at lunch today, what's your call? What, 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 how would you answer them? What would you say? I know that when I answer that question from people, I tend to answer at beginning with myself and the things that I do or the things that I want to do. What is my call in life? My call is to be a parent. My call is to be a husband. My call is, is to do this thing that I do or right now where I help teach young people. I feel like my call in, in many ways is, is to help people reconcile, to make this world a better place. My call is to serve the church. My call right now is to serve this institution. What I find interesting is that when the prophets talk about the call that is put out, the call does not begin referencing the individual. And in fact, the call does not begin referencing the individual or the community. When we see this call that Isaiah has, when he sets it up, when he sets the, the parameters around this, it starts with God. It starts with the word of God. It starts with the proclamation from God. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God. You have in the first half of that verse, four different ways in which God describes himself. Four different terms that God uses to describe his character and his nature. 
You have, you have God saying, I am the Lord. And we know that when we see that in our Bibles, if you have your Bible and it says that capital L-O-R-D, that we are talking about the Yahweh expression of who God is. That makes us think of that, that, that dramatic scene of Moses at the burning bush where God does this crazy thing that only God can do in like infinity entendre somebody. Like we can be pretty good with our words to double entendre somebody where we say one thing and it can kind of mean like two different things. And if we're really a wordsmith, we might be able to, wow, like bust out the magic and, and in a moment of clarity, triple entendre somebody. God, when God says, I'm Yahweh, when Moses is asking him, who should I say sent me? God, infinity entendres Moses, Mike, drop. Amazing moment of lyricism in the history of the world. Because when God says, I am, he is saying something very specific, but leaving it so broad that Moses knows that God can do anything, any thing. For when he says, go tell them that I am, it means that I am your voice. And we see God being the voice of Moses. When God says, I am, it means I am over in charge of this natural world. We see that when God turns the rivers to blood, when God sends the locusts, when God sends the frogs. I think it's comical that God sends frogs. Like you look at these, uh, different, you look at these different plagues that God sends. And like the one that always cracks me up is the frogs. Because like that would be one that would be like you would want to think, oh, like maybe God's just messing around. But it would be so annoying. Like frogs are loud and they keep you up at night and they're kind of slimy. And, and you would just be like sitting there and you could see the Egyptians being like, God, what are you doing? Lord of the frogs. And, and God's just like sitting up there, you know, sipping tea. I'm Lord of everything. That's none of my business though. Why don't y'all listen to me? Let my people go. And God shows that, that he is the power over life and death itself. God shows that he is the one who can say who is good and who is just and who is evil and who is unjust. It is this open-ended statement that at the very same time has this pinpoint specificity. I am the, the, the Lord over everything. You could fill in the blank no matter what you put in there. I have jurisdiction over that. God also says that he is your redeemer. He is my redeemer, that he is our redeemer. And that's a good thing because that means that in God, that is where we find our value. In God, that is where we find our value. The roundness of our story, that we were created in the image of God, that we were created for God's glory, that God invites us into this partnership where we get to do things for the glory for God, where, where, where God is going to speak wholeness into completeness in our lives at the times in our life where we feel like we don't have value, the times in our life where we look at someone and we say, I don't see any value in them or in their situation or in, they, or in who they inherently are. God is saying, no, you need to become the Lord over everything. And I am the one who gives people and situations and things their value and even when they seem valueless, I make them valuable because I am. And then God calls himself the Holy One, meaning that God has a separateness or God has a moral uprightness. Or in fact, God, you know, kind of sort of probably definitely has both of those things. That God is the standard and there was a reminder there for us, for the people of Israel, 
that God is the only standard that matters. And we can find things that fake or replicate or lay a false claim to the sovereignty of God, but all of that will be a lie, and it will be shown to be a lie at some point in time. Back in the day, when I was in high school, um, we were going, getting ready to go visit my dad's family on, on the East Coast, and I always loved those trips um, because we would go into the city for a day. We would go into New York City for a day and just kind of hang out, and so, you know, like I knew we were going to take this trip, and um, I saved up all my money because one of the things that I wanted to get uh, was a watch. I wanted to get a watch in New York City. What I knew about New York City, when you go down there, you can get all kinds of fake knockoff stuff, man. You get off-brand coach purses. You get off-brand uh, Oakleys. You get off-brand Rolexes. So I was like, man, I'm going to take fistful of dollars, and I'm going to go find somebody to sell me a Rolex for $10. And I thought I was just slick, man. Puffy and Biggie and Mace had that song, Throw Your Rolly in the Sky. I was like, I'm going to come back to the West Coast about what is up. And so... um. We get down there, and, and I find a dude to sell me a watch. He sells me the watch. I probably pay like $20 for this Rolex, right? And so I'm walking around, and, you know, I, I'm not wearing, I'm not going to wear long sleeves for like a year. I'm going to make sure everybody sees my watch. But this watch, like, something happened. Um, and what happened was, like, the goldness started rubbing off. The goldness started rubbing off. It started having, like, these, these, these bald patches or in fact, it wasn't gold. It was just some kind of silver metal. And then, you know, like the date thing stopped working. And then uh, it stopped accurately telling time. That was a problem. And almost everything bad that could happen to the watch, except for the little crown, like the super glue coming off in it and it just sitting askew the whole time, pretty much all that stuff happened. And so I had a choice. I ended up actually, even after it stopped telling time, I kept wearing it just because I wanted to wear this Rolex, which I've come to affectionately refer to in my old age as a Folex because it was a fake Rolex. But I just, I just kept wearing it around like it was a bracelet, like it was a piece of jewelry. And I was like, you know what? People, as long as they don't look really close, they'll still be super impressed by it. And as long as they don't actually ask me what time it is, I can probably keep the, 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 the charade up. But at the end of the day, there was nothing that would separate that watch from, from a watch that you could buy at, at Seamart. There was nothing upright about that watch. You know how much a Rolex costs if you were to, to buy one? The cheapest Rolex that you could buy, $4,000. Now, I'm not going to say it's worth it. I'm not going to say it as an adult. I'm going to save up my money to, to buy that. I will say this. The gold won't rub off. It'll be actual diamonds, not cubic zirconia. I'd imagine it would tell time for a lot more than three and a half weeks. And I'm going to bet that the emblem on the inside doesn't fall off. It may not be worth the amount of money you paid for it, but at least the statements that it makes about what it is and what its value is, those statements are true. And so when God says, I am the Holy One of Israel, God is saying, yeah, I am separate. I am morally upright, and so I am that I am, and I'm your redeemer, and I'm your holy one. And then finally, he just wraps up and just says, look, I'm the Lord your God. I'm Elohim. I'm the one that wrestled with Jacob. I'm the one that's been here forever. I'm the one that when that general use for, for gods, be they fake or true, is, is used to describe entities and deities and sometimes just fake bootsy chunks of wood or rock. I am the actual real one. That is me. When we talk about our call, 
when we think about our call, it's only a call that exists in a round story when we first come to terms with how God defines himself and then we decide that we want to exist inside of that reality, that, that, that true reality that God is all of those things. And so if we decide to do that, then how does that affect the call that God puts on our lives? God says that he's going to do two things for us. Implied in this is that we are going to respond to these two things that God's going to do in our lives. The first is that God is going to teach us for your own good. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you for your own good. We learn a lot of things in life. Day after day, we learn a lot of things. Some of those things we learn intentionally by what we put into our heads, by the habits we form and the habits that we establish. Some of those things we learn unintentionally from experiences that happen to us. Some of the things that we learn are things that are for our benefit. They are things that make us stronger. They are things that bring us closer to the people around us. They are the things that bring us closer to our creator. There are a lot of things that we learn, be they intentionally or unintentionally, that are not for our good. They are not for our benefit. They are not for our profit. They are meant for our destruction. It's so easy to fall into those things. Sometimes because we just don't want what's good for us. Sometimes because a culture has been created where we do not know what is good for us. And there was a little bit of a mixture of both of those things for the people of Israel at this point. When they're in exile and they're all over the place and God is saying, look, I'm the Lord your God and I am going to teach you what is for your own good. When we are existing in the round story of the gospel, the, the good news, all of these things about who God is and what God has done, are we allowing ourselves to be taught the things of God so that we may benefit? Not just so we can become successful, not just so, so, so we can benefit in, in a physical way, so that for, to the very depths of our soul, so that we can be made well and so that we can experience healing. And when we do that, do we trust that God is the one who, as the verse closes up, will lead us in the way you should go? Because God promises that. And when God promises something, God always makes good on his promises. The promise that God makes there is very specific and it's very interesting. The promise doesn't say, I, I, I will tell you right now what the end is going to be and all of the steps that it will take to get you there. No, God promises right here to give us the journey, to give us the correct journey, to give us the right journey, to give us the straight journey. In the psalm that was read during the call of worship, the, the promise was that the word of God would be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. We have to believe that. We have to believe that even along the way of this journey that God is continually working to redeem what is going on along that path. That the things that happen to us might not be good, but that God can redeem them to be good in the way that we tell the story, in the way that we live in the story, in the way that we handle that adversity to be an encouragement either to us or other people. We can trust 
that when we come into those things, be they evils that are done to us or evils that we do ourselves, that, that, that God can redeem those moments and teach us a new way because God does have a desire for us. God does have a direction for our life. God does have specific things that God wants us to do. God does want us to be a part of those things that God has been doing since the very creation of this world. God does want us to be in an intimate relationship with him. God does want us to be able from the very depths of our soul to sing praises to the one who created us. God does want us to take on the characteristics of God, God's God's loving nature, God's justice, God's faithfulness. God does want us to be upright and all of that is a journey. And there's a way that we are being called to. And for some of us, we might now be like remembering that, oh yeah, I was on that way at one time and I'm not there anymore and I need to get back to that. There's some of us for who this might be a very new concept, a very new idea. And we're getting that call from God and we're like, new phone, who this, man? I'm not really sure what you're asking me to do, big, big guy. But you know what? I, I think this, I believe this that when God helps us, gives us an opportunity to stand into that round story, even if where we stand right now, we can't believe that we are worthy of being in that story, even if we don't know that we can exist in the midst of that story, that perhaps God is bigger than our doubts and maybe God is bigger than our limitations. Maybe there will be people around us who can help us hear that call who can help us to be obedient to that call, who can help our lives to be redeemed, who can help us to hold up God as our standard, who can believe that God will be the one who is, that when God says, I am, that we can know and we can trust in that. And so maybe right now, even though it might not be comfortable, even this year, even though there might be a lot of flat notes in chapel, let us be assured that there's a call on our lives and that call in the midst of our flatness and our brokenness is indeed to a story that is round and robust and is good and that cannot be separated from the purposes and the character of God.